WMNF Tampa, and this is Background Briefing. Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Senate Minority Leader McConnell's determination to kill the bipartisan commission to look into the January 6th storming of the Capitol and his appeal to his caucus to do him a personal favour in opposing the commission. This after 14 Republican senators met with the mother and partner of the Capitol Police officer who died after being beaten and bear sprayed. But still Republicans could not muster the decency to support the police officers who protected them from a dangerous mob on that infamous day. Joining us is Norman Ornstein, a contributing editor at The Atlantic and the co-author of the bestseller It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism, and his latest, One Nation After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate and the not yet deported. With the proposed commission already watered down to get Republican support, which the GOP has reneged on, we will discuss Norm's suggestion of how to stand up an effective bipartisan investigation through the Justice Department. Then we'll look into Biden's tax plan meant to fund his infrastructure plan, which is facing opposition from the banking lobby that is weighing in on conservative Democratic Senators Manchin, Cinema, Bennett and Coons, who could stymie the infrastructure bill, whatever its price tag, by not supporting the proposed tax cuts on the rich and corporations meant to pay for it. James Henry, an economist, lawyer and investigative journalist who is the former chief economist at McKinsey & Company and the author of Blood Bankers, joins us to discuss how Democrats are focused on spending the stimulus money, not how to make sure they are able to raise the revenues to pay for it. Then finally, we will examine the extent to which Turkey has become a mafia state under Erdogan as a former mafia boss turned whistleblower, Sedat Peker, has captured the attention of the Turkish public with tell-all videos that implicate high officials in the government who only operate with Erdogan's blessing. David Phillips, the director of the Peace Building and Rights Program at the Institute for the Study of Human Rights at Columbia University, who was a foreign affairs expert and a senior advisor to Presidents Clinton, Bush and Obama, joins us to discuss the likelihood Erdogan will hang his interior minister out to dry, but with more videos coming out he may have a hard time deflecting blame. And joining us now is Norman Ornstein, a contributing editor at The Atlantic, a contributing editor and columnist for The National Journal, and a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research. He's the author of numerous books, most recently the New York Times bestsellers, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitution System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism, co-authored with Thomas Mann, now in an updated version, It's Even Worse Than It Was. And he's the co-author of One Nation After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate and the not yet deported. Welcome to Background Briefing, Norman Ornstein. Good to be with you again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Norman. And it's inevitable now that uh, the Republicans will kill the January the 6th commission, uh, which the House has voted on. And I think 35 Republicans in the House actually joined in. Uh, I think at this point, the Democrats may have three or four of Republicans at best, but now Mitch McConnell apparently is personally lobbying his caucus saying 
don't vote with the Democrats as a personal favor to me. So it's dead on arrival, right? It sure appears that way. It's hard for me to imagine that with McConnell calling his colleagues and saying it's a personal favor to him to vote against this, that there will be 10 Republican senators who will defy not just uh, their leader, but, of course, face the wrath of their true leader, former President Donald Trump. So this iteration of a commission uh, or a fact-finding body uh, is almost certainly uh, going nowhere. But already Nancy Pelosi made concessions to the Republicans in the House, and it was, after all, co-chaired by a Republican. And now Susan Collins has asked for even more concessions, and apparently that's not good enough. So how good is this commission at any rate, if it were to be uh, stood up? Of course, the infuriating element of this, and I suppose one could say the ironic nature of it, is that in the House, the Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy, made several demands uh, that would be required to get Republican approval for a commission. And I believe he did it with the expectation that uh, uh, the Speaker would not give in, and uh, then he could say it was their fault. But the Republicans got everything they asked for, everything specifically that Kevin McCarthy had asked for, an even number of Democrats and Republicans, subpoenas that could only be issued if the uh, chair and co-chair, Democrat and Republican, agreed, or if they disagreed, if a majority of the commissioners went along, which meant you'd have to get Republican buy-in and that the Republican members would be chosen by the two leaders, the uh, Republican leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, and Kevin McCarthy. And Benny Thompson, who negotiated this for the Democrats, the chair of the Homeland Security Committee, worked it out and gave them what they wanted, and McCarthy still opposed it. And despite getting everything that they could possibly have asked for to make it a reasonable, bipartisan, but honest, uh, commission, Mitch McConnell has gone to the mattresses uh, against it. What's obvious here, Ian, is that they don't want anybody uh, of any type that looks at uh, what happened on January 6th. And they don't want it first because it will shed a very bad light on some of their own members, some of whom were very likely involved in the planning of this, uh, we know that certainly there's an explicit allegation about uh, three members of the House, uh, including Paul Gosar of Arizona, Mo Brooks of Alabama. We know that uh, Senators Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley especially helped to incite this insurrection. We know that Donald Trump directly called for it. There's an awful lot that we suspect, but we don't know, including whether Trump deliberately made a series of changes at the Department of Defense, including the secretary's position, putting in his cronies to make sure that the National Guard would not be there to protect the Capitol. In other words, to ensure that there would be a violent break-in and possibly some uh, members of Congress and the vice president killed along the way. Uh, only a commission with serious powers can get at some of these things. And frankly, the commission that had been agreed to 
by Democrats and Republicans in the House uh, wasn't going to have all that power. So if this fails, uh, one hopes that they will turn to a better alternative, and there are better alternatives. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, uh, one of the alternatives was suggested, not an alternative, one of the strategies was suggested by Jonathan Alter, which was to make the Republicans do a talking filibuster so that you can name and shame them. Is that likely or possible? I'm very skeptical that that can happen, just given the nature of the rules, but also the incentives that are there for the Republicans. You can keep the floor open for a significant period of time, uh, but you can't force them one after the other to get up there and talk about it. The whole idea of a talking filibuster is to wear them down so that ultimately you can get a vote. But if it takes 60 Democrats and Republicans combined to get that vote, and they're not willing to provide those 10 Republicans, you're not going to be able to force anything. And in the end, uh, you're the ones who want to get a vote right now, and you get the vote, uh, admittedly one that will be to overcome a filibuster, uh, whether you take up another two or three or four days of floor time or not. And, of course, the reality is since there's no suspense to any of this right now, uh, we know what's going to happen. It's not as if if you're on the floor even filibustering right now that anybody uh, who wouldn't otherwise be completely immersed in Senate procedure will pay attention to what's going on. So in theory, it's a good idea. In practice, that's not going to work. And I think what we have to do at this point is to think about what alternatives there are to uh, this commission as it dies that will give the public what it needs and deserves and that will actually work uh, that don't necessarily involve Democratic and Republican buy-in on a, uh, a, a commission uh, set by a resolution in Congress. And of course, the mother of the fallen Capitol Hill officer, uh, Sitnik, she uh, lobbied, I think, 14 Republican senators agreed to talk with her and Officer Sitnik's partner as well. But again, it doesn't seem to likely to make any difference. But your suggestions, let's go through them because... Um, Before we get to that, you've raised something that I think is really important on a different front, uh, Ian. We have a, a special election in the House taking place uh, in New Mexico to replace a House member who's now in the cabinet. Uh, that will take place in a few days. And the entire Republican campaign has been around uh, hitting the Democrats for the defund the police idea, even though uh, the Democratic candidate is not for defunding the police. They see this as a winning issue. Uh, now, we can debate at another time whether it's useful to have as a slogan out there, even if it's not adopted by most members of Congress, of defund the police. But here you have Republicans campaigning on how they're uh, supporters of the police. And what the Republicans in the Senate are now doing is giving a fat middle finger to the Capitol Police. And the police officer who was nearly killed beaten, uh, tased, hit with bear spray, uh, who has 
criticized all of those voting against this commission. The mother of Officer Sitnik, his partner, many others in the Capitol Police are standing by while they see a Republican Party that doesn't care about them at all, that left them highly vulnerable. And, you know, if we can get a public focus on this element that looks at hypocrisy, um, that uh, would be another benefit, perhaps, of uh, having this issue highlighted right now. And again, I'm speaking with Norm Ornstein, a contributing editor for The Atlantic and a contributing editor and columnist for The National Journal and a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research. He's the author of numerous books, most recently the New York Times bestseller, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitution System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism, co-authored with Thomas Mann, now in an updated version, It's Even Worse Than It Was. And he's the co-author of One Nation After Trump a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not yet deported. So let's talk about your ideas, uh, Norman Ornstein, of a new commission, or a different kind of commission. Obviously, one by presidential executive order would not be useful because it would be seen as being partisan out of the gate. So tell us about your idea of, of running this through the Department of Justice. Sure. And I would say, of course, we have had presidentially appointed commissions through executive orders in the past. The Kerner Commission, uh, which investigated the assassination of President Kennedy, is one. But in this case, as you said, I would be very reluctant to see that happen. Remember, this was an insurrection built around the election of Joe Biden. And for President Biden to create a commission embroils him in a controversy that he doesn't need, given every other priority that he has. But a Justice Department-created body would be a different matter. Better than a congressionally mandated one for one particular reason to begin with, which is the much-enhanced subpoena power. So Congress has subpoena power, we know. They can subpoena witnesses. What we also know is that on a fairly regular basis, all throughout the Trump years, that his appointees and others who were connected to him refused congressional subpoenas, took him to court. We know that that can take years to resolve, and it then becomes almost meaningless to have something like that happen. So at the same time, all Congress can do is subpoena witnesses. Now, you know, they could, in theory, use their inherent contempt power to declare those who refuse to appear in contempt and then send their sergeant-at-arms out to, uh, you know, haul that person into uh, a room or a makeshift prison in the Capitol. But they don't do that. The Justice Department can subpoena not just individuals with a much greater threat of imprisonment if they refuse to cooperate, but they can also subpoena, as we've seen with Rudy Giuliani now, uh, documents and uh, email records and text messages and phone records and all the kinds of things that in this case become particularly significant because we may very well find email uh, or text traffic or phone calls back and forth between some members of Congress and the Proud Boys or others who led this uh, particular effort, 
We may find communications between the Trump White House and his Defense Department officials coordinating the refusal to respond to uh, urgent requests for help from the Capitol Police or uh, from the mayor of the District of Columbia or the police chief of the District of Columbia. We may find communications between some of these violent insurrectionists and the members of Congress who uh, violated their rules by giving tours of the Capitol in the days leading up to January 6th to give them the lay of the land. And we know that some of them use those tours to be able to go to unmarked offices that they knew were uh, occupied by key members of Congress. So the Justice Department is a better place to go. It's removed from the president. It has more power. There are a variety of ways to do this. One is the attorney general uses his authority to appoint a special counsel in the same way that Robert Mueller was appointed. And that special counsel can use uh, a lot of staff uh, drawn from the Southern District of New York, the uh, public integrity section of the Justice Department or the criminal division uh, or hire some of uh, his or her own. But at the same time, you could have that special counsel Uh, pick a group of citizens to work with him or her and give them the staff and subpoena power to be able to investigate all of these things or turn over to this uh, special commission the evidence that you are accruing and let them then use it to hold public hearings and make recommendations to the Justice Department about what ought to be done. So there are workarounds to the failure by filibuster uh, uh, to create this congressionally uh, mandated commission that would uh, probably be preferable. Well, again, we didn't even talk about why a congressional uh, House investigation would not be effective, which is simply because Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy would just stack the Republican deck with the crazies like Matt Gates and, and Jim Jordan, right? I mean, that's a given, isn't it? So, at least in theory, uh, Nancy Pelosi could uh, propose and the House could pass the creation of a select committee where she could choose the members. Now, of course, she could choose Republicans who might then refuse to serve. Uh, you know, she could choose Liz Cheney and Adam Kinsinger, uh, among others. Um, and there aren't very many others who you could choose who would be uh, fair-minded uh, about all of this. In theory, she could create a special committee that just had Democrats. But while that can work, and, you know, let's face it, the Republicans did 11 Benghazi investigations, um, and they got significant attention. And you'll remember that Kevin McCarthy bragged publicly that the whole reason was to try to damage Hillary Clinton in her presidential campaign. It wasn't to actually investigate what went on. But you don't want to get yourself into a position where it's going to be relatively easy to criticize what you're doing as a purely partisan effort. If you have an outside group that can include Republicans of impeccable integrity, like Tom Ridge, the former governor of Pennsylvania, Homeland Security Secretary, uh, Michael Chertoff, the former uh, 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 Secretary of Homeland Security. Fran Townsend, a former top uh, national security figure in the Bush White House. And there are many, many others who you know are going to do this with deep integrity and fair-mindedness. Uh, 
If you can create a panel of that sort, not relying on incumbent members of Congress or other elected officials, you might end up with a better outcome. So you'd have a special prosecutor like Mueller, but presumably... Special counsel. Sorry, special counsel, I mean, like Mueller, but presumably a little more on the ball. And he would work then with this select group, a bipartisan group of prominent Democrats and Republicans, like the 9-11 Commission, where Philip Zillikow was pretty much... Yes. He, had, he seemed to really take the lead on it, but still there were others of a bipartisan nature. So just in the last couple of minutes, give us a sense of how that would work, what the relationship would be between the special counsel and the kind of eminent people. So there are undoubtedly various ways of doing this, and you'd want to do it at uh, at best with the existing regulations in the Justice Department around the creation of a special counsel. There was no reason, for example, why uh, Robert Mueller couldn't have held public hearings. Uh, now, you know, he wanted his work product to stand by itself, but of course there were lots of prosecutions of individuals, many of whom were then pardoned by Donald Trump. Um, but he also did a lot of this effort starting with the uh, understanding that he felt uh, under the rules and under the rulings of the Justice Department that he would not uh, move to prosecute a sitting president. So let's say that you start with that set of rules. He hired a big staff. I just don't see why you can't, under those circumstances, have that individual not only have a staff to work with, with detailees from the Justice Department and others that he or she would hire, but also use a panel of uh, distinguished citizens to help out with this process. And while you might not start with a set of public hearings by that group, you could, as you uh, achieve findings, use them to do public questioning of some of the witnesses that you have uh, involved in this, or even if you wait until you've compiled all this evidence and ideally do it in a relatively tight timetable. But, you know, you can find a way to build in robust subpoena power, and you've got to be able to get the phone records, uh, the um, uh, email exchanges, and the like, to be able to get to the bottom of who coordinated this, how far in advance, what they knew, and what they had prepared for. And you can find workarounds that uh, conform with what powers the Justice Department has, and without involving the president or the attorney general directly, turn it over to a group of people who, of course, are going to be ripped apart by uh, partisan Republicans who don't want any focus on this uh, or any uh, you know, spotlight on culpability. But for others, uh, including a whole lot of Republicans in the country, they'll accept the credibility of uh, findings uh, through a hearing process done by a bipartisan group of distinguished citizens. Well, it's worked before, hasn't it? I mean, uh, my friend Alex Butterfield, he testified, and then they realized, oh, there's something in this, and they hauled him back. 
he reluctantly testified and of course he was a star witness so it's a perfectly workable system and um, it has to be public though at the end of the day doesn't it Norm? It has to be public and of course you know partisanship is always going to play a role in uh, these kinds of investigations neither party wants to be uh, held accountable or blamed for bad things that happen but if you go back to the Watergate hearings and the Watergate investigation and uh, all the way through the uh, House Judiciary Committee uh, hearings, if you look at uh, almost every investigation that we've had, we've had elected Republicans and elected Democrats who, if not unanimously, in very substantial numbers, were searching for the truth and wanted to get to the bottom of it. That's not what we have right now, so we're going to have to find extraordinary ways to get to the bottom of it. Well, Norman Ornstein, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Sure. Okay, Ian. Take care. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Norman Ornstein, a contributing editor for The Atlantic, a contributing editor and columnist at the National Journal, and a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute for Public Policy Research. He's the author of numerous books, most recently the New York Times bestseller, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism, co-authored with Thomas Mann, now in an updated version, It's Even Worse Than It Was. And he's the co-author of One Nation After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not yet deported. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking at how conservative Democratic senators could stymie the infrastructure bill, whatever its price tag, by not supporting the proposed tax cuts on the rich and corporations meant to pay for it. As part of WMNF's mission calendar, we are paying special attention to mental mental health awareness in May. If you know, listeners, that their loved ones are struggling, if you need help, you can reach out to the Crisis Center of Tampa Bay. The number is 211. That's 211. WMNF is here for you, too. Thanks for listening. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is James Henry, a Global Justice Fellow at Yale University, economist, lawyer, and investigative journalist, and the former chief economist at McKinsey & Company, and the co-founder with David K. Johnson of the new investigative reporting service, dcreport.org, and the author of Blood Bankers. He just did a podcast at Who Is with New York Times columnist and Nobel economist Paul Krugman on inherited wealth and wealth inequality. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Henry. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's a huge wrangling going on, of course, on Capitol Hill between the Democrats and Republicans over the infrastructure bill. And Biden has come down from like $2.2 trillion down to about $1.7 trillion, I think he came down. Now, well, the combined, yeah, the combined spending plan for the Biden plans, and it's a little bit confusing if you combine the, the whole spending plan, including 
what he wants to spend on infrastructure and tax credits for families and education and healthcare, it's 4.2 trillion. Um, and to offset that, he's proposing about 3.6 trillion in tax increases, uh, about 2 trillion of which comes from increasing the corporate tax rate to back uh, to uh, 28%. Trump had cut it to 21%. Um, and then a bunch of other tax changes, including, importantly, trying to get at the incredible fact that we have basically gone into the business of what I call dynastic capitalism. That was the subject of this podcast with Krugman. You know, state in this country, um, you can now leave completely without any tax at all. $11.7 million if you're a single person. $23.4 million if you're married. Uh, and, you know, so we have a, a tiny fraction of people who are even paying estate taxes anymore. The Biden would would put that back to uh, where it was in 2009, where the uh, the minimum was three point five and seven million. And, you know, that. so anyway, the, the, the thing that's going on right now, which I think is really interesting and I've been paying attention and trying to help out here is uh, the first serious effort at having a tax justice uh, implemented in in the federal tax system. We've had 40 years of tax cuts, uh, not only corporate, but also individual rates since the 1970s and, and, and especially since Reagan, uh, which really haven't ever paid for themselves. And now we're in a situation where, you know, last year we saw so many families being hurt in this country. At the same time, you saw the top 650 billionaires in the country saw their uh, net worth increase uh, by, uh, you know, $1.6 trillion uh, during the COVID thing, because a lot of these folks, uh, you know, who own companies like uh, Amazon have done quite well. And a lot of those gains were just not taxed. There's, there's no tax on unrealized capital gains. So most of the stock market increase that was tremendous in the last year has uh, just gone untaxed. You know, so the top 1% uh, got about $4 trillion richer. And so we're in a situation, we're just talking about basic tax fairness. Um, Biden has proposed this uh, important combination of increased spending to help uh, middle-class people and, uh, and some really pretty reasonable tax increases. But... I was about to say that the Republicans, of course, have come back with basically one trillion, but it's all irrelevant, isn't it? These numbers, trillion here, trillion there, it's irrelevant unless you find a way to pay for it. And so what we should be focused on here is Biden's tax plan and what is happening yes. to it. And it's my understanding that the banking lobby and the Wall Street lobby are weighing in on a number of these wavering Democratic senators, the more conservative ones like Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, uh, Coons and Bennett. And if they peel even one of them off, then you're not going to raise the money from corporations and from the rich to pay for the infrastructure uh, bill. So why is all this attention on the infrastructure bill and not on the tax plan? Well, that's exactly right. I think part of the story is that uh, progressives love to spend the money before they figure out taxes. 
Tax policy is always boring to people. They don't want to wade into the details here. But it is the case that in the next six to eight weeks, we will basically have an awful lot of lobbyists descending on Congress. Uh, this is where the, the, the fight is going to be going on. Uh, the, Demo- the Republicans' uh, infrastructure bill, you know, <laughs> $928 billion they came out with today, only about $257 billion of that is new investment. Um, they're funding it entirely by raiding the existing pandemic funds. They're not going to raise taxes at all. And, uh, you know, they've just proposed uh, a, a tiny amount of, of necessary investment. So it's basically a return to the status quo. Uh, you're quite right that if, if the Biden tax bill uh, doesn't command support or doesn't get through Congress, there are about six key states. And you've named a, a, a few of them uh, where there are soft Democrats, you know, people like Sinsimo in, in Arizona, uh, Joe Manchin in West Virginia, uh, you know, where, where there there is some doubt that they won't uh, that they will go along with this uh, this reform. But I think, you know, the, the fact is the American people, uh, when polled on this matter of tax justice, really do support the Biden plan. I mean, there have been 12 polls to date uh, on, on the plan, and by margins of 60 to 70 percent, uh, you know, ordinary Americans are supporting uh, the tax plan, and they support the infrastructure much more uh, investments and the, and the other spending uh, to a much greater extent if they see that we're paying for it. Uh, so, you know, I think that there's, a growing consensus around the reasonableness of this. When you look at, you know, 55 major U.S. companies paid no taxes last year uh, on $40 billion of profits. Uh, you see these extraordinary increases in the wealth of the untaxed wealth of the of the top 1% of the company country. You see all these extraordinary loopholes that companies have been uh, exploiting that, you know, the average uh, uh, Fortune 500 company's tax rate, in fact, is not, you know, 35% or 21%. Its effective rate is about 7 to 8%, uh, which is, you know, within all of the competitors in the OECD countries, you know, right in the middle, squarely in the middle. And we're uh, leading the, the race to the bottom. Um, so that's a story that I think once Americans hear it and they understand it, uh, they support this this uh, this Biden tax reform. Yeah, but Jim, where are they going to ha- hear this story? I mean, well, we we are you know there's a a bunch of people like me who are out there and we're going to lobby in, in Washington over the next you know it's what what Ralph Nader, my friend, <laughs> I, I started out as a Nader Raider back in the '60s, and the one thing I learned from him. Uh, that a lot of, you know, progressives seem to have forgotten is Congress, Congress, Congress. You have to go and sit in and lobby people and just get people aroused and go to the congressional districts and get people to, to go uh, lobby their congressmen. And yes, in theory, Wall Street has all the money in the world and they have all the lobbyists they can afford. But at the end of the day, can't deny the merits of the, of the arguments, uh, you know, they can't deny the facts about uh, what's been happening to tax rates. You know, Trump's tax bill in 2017 
sailed through the Senate without even any hearings. And, you know, it, it was about a $900 billion gift to American multinational companies. You know, we're basically just trying to take back some of that, uh, of that sort of largesse. Uh, and I think the closer people understand that this tax bill that Biden has proposed is, is not going to tax people with incomes less than $455,000, which is probably, you know, we're talking about uh, less than 1% of the American population is going to experience any tax increase. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, basically the corporations have gotten off like bandits. That's why those stocks have been soaring. Uh, you know, they don't really have anything to fear from uh, tax rates that are, you know, one-third the level of what they were in the 1950s on corporations. Uh, back in the uh, leader of that great socialist, uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower. So, again, if you were advising the Biden administration, how do you get them to get the American people to understand that the popular stimulus bill is just a pipe dream until and unless you pass the tax plan to pay for it. So, again, there's so much print and press and TV on the infrastructure plan and the numbers back and forth and between the Republicans yeah. and the Democrats. And it's all a waste of time unless you focus on how to raise the money to pay for it. Otherwise, it's never going to get off the ground. So I don't know. How would you advise Biden to navigate this? I think the Democrats have to uh, do exactly what the Republicans and the business community are doing right now, which is to focus on the tax side of this bill in Congress. They have to stop talking about spending uh, plans that are, you know, sort of very ambitious, uh, talking exclusively about that. It, it's fine that there's, you know, a lot of wonderful things for us to do, you know, roads to be built and uh, green infrastructure and the family work credits. These are all wonderful programs. But if we only focus on spending and don't explain to people that it's going to be necessary to pay for all this stuff, uh, especially given the process, complicated kind of reconciliation bill process that they're going through in Congress right now to get it passed, there have to be so-called pay-fors for all of these infrastructure proposals. Uh, you know, and uh, so... We're talking about sums that are stretched out over 10 years. So when you talk about 4.2 trillion, that sounds like a lot, but that's not going to happen at once. That's a 10 year figure. Uh, so on average, the U.S. economy is somewhere on the order of uh, 17 to 21 trillion, depending on, uh, you know, the, 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 probably the latest number is close to 21 trillion in terms of whole GDP. Uh, so this is a relatively small number from an aggregate economic standpoint, but it's going to make all the difference in terms of making these essential investments. And I think that, you know, the, part of the problem is the tax policy is, is uh, you know, a little bit sausage-making. It's kind of complicated stuff. So you start people talking about the corporate tax rate going from 21% to 28%. People's eyes glaze over. They don't want to know all this. The big story is that basically we're going to redistribute some income uh, to the to the uh, to the federal government and the state governments because these uh, public investments that we need to make 
are absolutely vital to the health and welfare of most Americans. You know, you can't have a school system. You can't have a public health care system, as we've seen under COVID. Uh, uh, you, you know, you can't have uh, the kind of basic R&D and development that we need to make uh, without taxes. And taxes have a fundamental contribution to make. So this is, in a sense, taking Reagan's doctrine about, uh, you know, less, less government is better, and small government is better, and uh, low taxes are the way to go and just turning it on its head. We've had 40 years of that. We have vital public investments to make, and we can't afford to do it without these fairly modest, <laughs> in the scheme right. of things, tax increases. And, of course, today in Ohio, President Biden rather humorously mocked the 13 Republicans who voted against the American Rescue Plan but have been campaigning on it, how wonderful it is and how they supported it <laughs> back in their districts. Yeah. So there you have it. I thank you for joining us here today, James Henry. Good to be with you. And again, I've been speaking with James Henry. He's a Global Justice Fellow at Yale and a former chief economist at McKinsey and & Company and the co-founder with David K. Johnson of the new investigative reporting news service, dcreport.org, and the author of Blood Bankers. And he just did a podcast, the podcast, uh, Who Is?, with New York Times columnist and Nobel economist Paul Krugman on inherited wealth and wealth inequality. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the extent to which Turkey has become a mafia state under Erdogan. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is David Phillips, the Director of the Peace Building and Rights Program at the Institute for the Study of Human Rights at Columbia University, and a former Senior Advisor and Foreign Affairs Expert to the United States Department of State during the administrations of Presidents Clinton, Bush, and Obama. He chaired the Turkish-Armenian Reconciliation Commission and the Track 2 program in Turkey and the Caucasus, and his books include Unsilencing the Past, Diplomatic History, the Turkey-Armenia Protocols, and most recently, Frontline Syria, From Democratic Revolution to Proxy War. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Phillips. Thank you, Ian Masters. Well, thank you, David. And this exploding story in Turkey, I don't know why it's not getting a lot of coverage over here, because it, it seems quite tectonic with this mafia boss who's holed up I believe in Dubai, he sent seven YouTube videos so far naming names close to the Erdogan's inner circle. His interior minister in particular seems to be in the crosshairs. So there's been a history of the relationship with crime and government in, in Turkey for some time. But for all of Erdogan's piety, 
since he is, you know, an Islamist. It seems like he's running a mafia state. If he's running a mafia state, he has mafia operatives who do dirty business for him. One of those operatives has been Sedat Peker, who's been burned by Erdogan, fled the country, and is now releasing a series of videos implicating uh, Justice and Development Party officials, including the current Interior Minister, Suleiman Soylu, as well as the former Prime Minister, Binali Yildirim, and all kinds of corrupt and criminal activity. Part of the reason we haven't heard a lot about it in U.S. media is because Erdogan is very careful uh, to watch his back, make sure that he's not leaving any tracks. So we really don't have evidence of the ties between uh, Sedat Peker and Erdogan himself. But as Peker releases videos, seven have been released so far, He's gradually getting into the weeds with more details. And those details are implicating individuals and officials. And nothing at this level in Turkey happens unless Tayyip Erdogan is involved and taking his cut. So the interior minister, Soylu, has now cut off security cooperation with the United States. And we're also learning that after Lukashenko hijacked that Ryanair plane and nabbed the one journalist. The Europeans, NATO, got together to make a very strong statement, but Turkey, one of the 30 members, basically watered it down. What's the motive there? Is this the old playbook of blaming foreigners for your own crimes? And the playbook has to do with extreme nationalist far-right politicians, some of whom represent countries in NATO, uh, watching out for each other. Uh, Erdogan is watching out for Lukashenko because they're cut out of the same cloth. They both run tyrannical regimes. They both abuse the rights of their citizens. Uh, and now information is coming to light, not only about Lukashenko's nefarious activities um, since the election last year, but also Erdogan's cooperation with nationalists and gray wolves and gangsters, all of whom were involved in dirty business. That dirty business involves uh, not only narcotics trafficking, but apparently Sedat Peker ran an operation for Turkey's National Intelligence Agency, uh, providing weapons and other uh, materials to people in northern Syria who were targeting the Syrian Kurds. So there are many layers here. Not all of them are apparent. Erdogan's involvement is uh, carefully encrypted but clearly Erdogan is involved in this activity. As Peker shares more information, members of Erdogan's cabinet are increasingly nervous about being implicated, which is why the interior minister Suleiman Soylu is doubling down. Uh, if you follow the food chain, Erdogan will be involved and it will be revealed that 
Peker was acting at his behest. Not only the deep state in Turkey, but Erdogan as well, who controls the Islamist deep state today. And again, I'm speaking with David Phillips, the director of the Peace Building and Rights Program at the Institute for the Study of Human Rights at Columbia University and a former senior advisor and foreign affairs expert to the United States Department of State during the administrations of Presidents Clinton, Bush and Obama. So presumably the DEA are looking at the drug trafficking that's going on and apparently one of the reasons it explains why Erdogan has supported Maduro in Venezuela is that that's where all the cocaine used to come out of Colombia, but now it's coming out of Venezuela, and it goes through Turkey into Europe, and it's a huge trafficking, and Erdogan presumably gets his cut. So surely there's some U.S. interest there. Why aren't we outing the SOB? Well, we may be working behind the scenes to uh, share information with Interpol, the DEA, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency, may be involved in uh, tracking Pecker and his drug trafficking. Uh, we simply don't know. You know this kind of dirty business uh, is done behind closed doors. We can speculate. We can look at incidents in the past and draw lessons from them. In particular, the Sasurlik incident from 1996, when a car crashed, killed its occupants, which included a police chief, a gangster, and a leader of the Grey Wolves. So these constituencies, these groups in Turkey have a long history of collusion. That collusion is, is, is still going on. Uh, and if you follow the food chain, it'll lead right to the president's office, to the White House in Ankara, and potentially implicate Erdogan himself. And the scandal that you mentioned in the 1990s also involved the, the Grey Wolves and these mafia types murdering journalists and blowing up a journalist in a car. Erdogan has killed and jailed legions of journalists and hundreds of thousands of people have lost their jobs and have been impoverished by this man. He, this is the playbook of these, these right-wing dictators is that they destroy democratic institutions and civil society and the rule of law. Isn't that the pattern? It certainly happened in Russia under Putin. It's happened with Lukashenko in uh, Belarus, and it's happened in Turkey. So yes, Ian, that is the pattern. The other part of the pattern is to enlist these criminal gangsters uh, to uh, perform hits and assassinate political opponents. And in Turkey, political opponents typically are the Kurds. So it's not surprising that Sedat Peker is implicated in transferring weapons to jihadists and ISIS affiliates in northern Syria that they were using to target Syrian Kurds who were acting as America's boots on the ground in the fight against al-Qaeda in Syria. So there's a lot of, there, there are a lot of fingerprints. We don't know where this innuendo leads, but the Turkish political establishment wouldn't be ducking and covering the way it is unless they were concerned that there was evidence that could implicate senior cabinet officials as well as other politicians. This is just business as usual in Turkey. If you have a political opponent, 
one way to get rid of them is to kill them. If you want to make some money, you take a piece of drug smuggling. If you want to support ISIS, you provide them with heavy and offensive weapons. Ultimately, somebody is paying for all this. And it's not surprising that when Sadat Peker had his falling out with the interior minister, Suleiman Soylu, that he went to the UAE, and it's rumored that he's still there. He set up shop there and is running his rogue operation you know, um, from the Emirates. Uh, there's a lot more to this story that we don't know. I don't think we should speculate right now, but over time, if Peker continues to spill the beans and implicate senior Turkish officials, we're going to learn a lot more about how government officials were involved. And we'll also know whether uh, the smoking gun connects Erdogan to these crimes. It looks increasingly as though the Turkish government was involved systematically in weapons trafficking, drug sales, political assassinations. Shouldn't be surprised. This is the way business is done in Turkey, and it's a hallmark of the Justice and Development Party, Erdogan's AKP, which has turned gangsterism into an art. Well, just in the last couple of minutes, uh, David Phillips, does that mean then that Erdogan, who takes the biggest cut, but also has cutouts, so his fingerprints aren't on it, is he going to hang out the Interior Minister Soylu to dry? Of course he will. If there's uh, any evidence that implicates uh, Erdogan potentially, he'll find somebody else to take the fall. He might even reach out to Sedat Peker and try to cut a deal with him so that the accusatory finger is pointed elsewhere. The important thing for us to keep in mind is that this kind of high-level corruption and dirty business in Turkey doesn't happen unless Erdogan knows about it and sponsors it. So there's no way this is being done at a lower or a working level. This probably reaches right to the inner circles of the Erdogan government. Well, Peker himself, in one of the seven videos that he's put out on YouTube, which have been seen by millions of people in Turkey, I mean, it's just, they're breaking all kinds of online records in terms of social media uh, downloads. So, he... This is WMNF Tampa, 88.5 on the left side of your dial. Best little radio station on planet Earth. You want to stay tuned for NPR News and then... Uh, Tom Hartman will be in for a midpoint, and Art in Your Rear with Joellen Shilke, and uh, Live Music Showcase, Mark Perfetti's in with that, and then Reverend Billy's Rhythm Revival, and The Bumpy Ride, The Rebel will be in with that, it's a drinking show with a music problem, and Route 66, Mike Vinyl will be in, that's always a great show, so stay tuned, don't go anywhere.